0: Great. Good morning. No one expected it to be so bad. How could all of this possibly happen at once? So-called Islamic State pull off a series of coordinated attacks on the UK uh, in an unprecedented scale. All fuel uh, depots exploded. No petrol, no diesel, no oil. All water treatment plants contaminated all our tap water is made lethal. All banks bought down. No credit cards or debit cards working anywhere. No transactions online. You can't withdraw any cash. No one gets paid. And then they couldn't get to work anyway. The United Kingdom is paralyzed. Now, before you start worrying, you haven't missed the news this morning. Um, I made that up. I can reassure you of that. But just imagine it for a moment. Imagine the panic. Imagine the despair. The fear. And this is perhaps something close to how the people were feeling, who the prophet Joel was addressing. There seems to have been a a huge plague of locusts. And uh, unless you have a special interest in this area, you probably haven't given much thought to locusts like me. uh, Or what locusts can do when they get together. But it's a very real and major problem. Locust swarms are an issue in the present day and uh, described as natural disasters in the places where they strike. I don't know if you can make that out, but there you go. There's millions of locusts there. According to the National Geographic, uh, a a desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles uh, in size. Uh, They can pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into one square mile. Sorry, it's less than half a square mile, one square kilometer. And each locust can eat its weight in plants every day. So a swarm of that size would eat something like 192 million kilograms of plants every day. So 192 bags of sugar every day. It's a big problem. A big problem. And whilst we do, of course, depend on agriculture, we're perhaps a bit less in touch with the seriousness of these effects. After all, we just pop down to the supermarket, don't we? We buy imported food from somewhere else. Big deal. But what if your crops are your only source of food? What if there are no supermarkets or alternative supplies? What if you don't have sophisticated long-term food storage solutions? What if you really had to rely on today's crops? Well, that's the situation in Joel's day. Please read with me from Joel chapter 1, verse 1. It's on page 911, 911 in the church Bibles. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days? Or in the days of your ancestors. Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children. And their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left. The great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left. The young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left. Other locusts have eaten. Wake up you drunkards and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. That's an army of locusts. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. A great swarm of locusts has wiped out the land. The nation is paralyzed. The, destruct, the destruction is on a scale like they've before never seen or heard of. Verse 10 summarizes it well. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. And the olive oil fails. And for this, for this people, that meant no food, starvation. They couldn't pop to the supermarket or resort to the food they'd stockpiled in their deep freezer. All they could do was despair, weep, wail, mourn and grieve. Surely the people's joy, verse 12, is withered away. There is no happiness to be found, no laughter, no gladness. This people were broken by this catastrophic disaster. The scale is immense. Verses 17 to 20 extend, the suffering of the, extend to the suffering of the land and animals. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Maybe a wide-scale IS attack on UK soil might give us something of uh, some kind of parallel to the despair of this people. But we yet to reach the depths of their problems. I realize this is probably sounding depressing enough, but we get to reach the depth of their problems. There was a hint of it in verses 8 and 9. I don't know if you saw that, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. And this deeper problem is made clear in verse 13. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. The issue is not so much that they don't have any bread, any grain to to present the daily grain offering. Although that is the case. No grain means they can't present the grain offering. But the more profound issue was the question of where this left them before God. The grain offerings and drink offerings were the daily symbols of the covenant God had made with his people, the reminders of God's promise to them. His covenant is an agreement he entered into by promise with them. And these daily offerings are a daily reminder that Yahweh, their God, the Lord, had invited them into relationship with Him and promised His faithfulness to them. That's what these offerings reminded them of. But now these daily offerings are withheld from the house of their God. And the absence of these reminders of the covenant were a silence that spoke volumes. What I'm about to say might uh, come as a shock to our sensitized Western ears, but the prophet Joel had an insight about this national disaster, which we need to get to grips with if we want to hear what God says to us through these verses. If we want to see what was really going on, then we must ask the difficult question, who sent the swarm of locusts? Who sent this swarm of locusts that destroyed the land? Who is responsible for this despair and destruction? If we're listening to what Joel is saying, we might begin to get a little uncomfortable now. Take a look at verses 14 to 16, where the Lord, speaking through Joel, prescribes what must be done. Declare a holy fast call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. What must they do? Cry out to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is behind the events which have destroyed them. The Lord, Yahweh, is behind the events which have destroyed them. It's not the case that some other third party has attacked them and they're to cry out to the Lord to see if he might wade in and help them. The Lord himself is the one who's against his own people. And so if they're to receive any relief, it's to the Lord they must cry. The destruction that had come on them was destruction from the Almighty. In the original Hebrew language of Joel, there's a word play on, on the words destruction and Almighty. In English, we might say something like uh, overpowering from the overpowerer. That all this is from the Lord is reinforced by the phrase, the day of the Lord. It's His day, it's of Him. This is a key phrase in Joel, and we'll return to it next week in part two. For now, we must just try and feel the desperation of this people, who have not only lost their provisions and their livelihood, but their very covenant relationship with their God that defines them as a people has a great big question mark hanging over it. They are recipients of judgment from the Lord their God they were the people who the Lord their God had called into special relationship with himself but instead joy and gladness is cut off from the house of their God where do we fit into this picture where do you where do I fit into this picture this morning Maybe you're wondering how this applies to me. What is God saying to me through this? Well, maybe he's prompting some of us to consider the state of our relationship with him. Are we enjoying the life of the covenant that he's made with us, the new covenant? Are we enjoying the life of this relationship that he's called us into? Or has our relationship broken down and dried up? perhaps our joy and gladness have been cut off you know the state of your private personal relationship with god so there's the plague let's uh, think a bit about the problem okay so why did god bring about this disaster if uh, it, is he after all as so many people suspect just some kind of mean petty cosmic bully is that who god is it will help us to answer this why question at two levels. Firstly, we can think in terms of how the people might have provoked this judgment. How the people might have provoked this judgment. Scholars admit that we know very little about the background to Joel's prophecy, apart from what the book itself tells us. It's widely regarded as impossible to be certain about the date of the prophecy. And so that means it's hard to be certain, or we can't be certain, about the historical events that have been experienced, or were going on, or that might have been coming in the future. We just don't know. What seems very reasonable, though, is the assumption that at least a significant part of this problem, of the problem of the people Joel's addressing, is the problem of idolatry. As the saying goes, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And this appears to be the case for the people Joel is addressing. Even his name could be a hint at this. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. An appropriate name for a prophet who would call God's people back to him. Yahweh is God and there is no other. And commentators point out that the selection of these three categories of drunkards and farmers and priests might not be entirely random. The text itself refers to drunkards and it's not a wild leap to assume that the people were indulging in the practices of the people who lived in the land before them. And drunkenness and group drunkenness and activities along with that were a key part of that. The farmers likewise might have mixed, with the, uh, mixed the worship of Yahweh with the worship of, of the Canaanite fertility gods wanting them to bless their land. Mixing gods, worshipping different gods. And the priests, well, they had a part in this all too. So firstly, we can suggest that these people provoked this judgment by their pursuit of other gods. Secondly, though, we must answer this why question, why judgment, at a different level. Surely, these people deserve this judgment. God was just to act, however uncomfortable it makes us feel. God was just to act in the way he did. That must be true from what we know of God. But on another level, there was a reason behind God sending this judgment, which becomes clear as we go on into chapter 2. You see a hint of this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. God says, blast the trumpet as an alarm, a warning. A ram's horn trumpet would be sounded as an alarm if an enemy was approaching to attack. God is warning that he's approaching to attack. God is saying, look out. This current locust swarm and all its destruction is more than just judgment for the people's heart rebellion. This current locust swarm and all its destruction is a warning, an alarm, a mini-judgment, if you like, to get God's people's attention and warn them of the greater, ultimate judgment that's still to come. Chapter 2 continues using the present real locust invasion as a picture of the future universal judgment, the day of the Lord which we'll think more about next week. Blow the trumpet in Zion, chapter 2. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountains like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders. At the head of his army, his forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Despair is the right response to such a future. Except it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Remember, God is giving this as a warning. And warnings usually come with an alternative. When we give a warning, we normally warn because there's an alternative. And an alternative is exactly what God pleads for in verse 12 and following. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning rend your heart this tear your heart break your heart and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity who knows he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his, chamber, his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So God sends a judgment as a warning, an opportunity to repent, an alarm, alerting people to the danger they're facing if they don't repent. What God really desires, though, is that people return to him. Such is the grace of God that he pleads with this unfaithful people to return to him. Not because he's desperate or needy, but because he's gracious and compassionate, rich in love. God loves to love. That's who he is. Because he made known, as he made known through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And so it is that this God of love says to this people who had wandered astray, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend, break your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. What sweet news that would have been to Joel's hearers! What about us hearing the word of the Lord through Joel today? I'm guessing that not many of our hearts have gone after Canaanite fertility gods. But I'm sure we've come up with our own substitutes. What is it that captures the attention and desire of your heart? What is it that draws greater delight from your heart than the Lord, your God? A relationship, success or status at work or college... Money, material possessions, church service, being needed, being appreciated, maybe a virtual reality of computer games or television or virtual friends. The thing that captivates your heart might not be bad in and of itself, although it could be. Canaanite fertility gods, not a great thing. But the issue is the captivation of our hearts. What would it look like for you to fix your whole heart on God? How would your wholehearted love of God affect your your personal life, your daily life, your personal mission, your front lines? What would it mean to live this wholehearted life for God there? And uh, that's a a big challenge. But we also have uh, another big challenge for us in our church life as well. As a leadership, we're beginning to be excited about vision and things for for the future. We've got some uh, ideas and plans that we're beginning to work on. But a key priority we've realized must be our heart relationship with God. We can do amazing programs. We can have fantastic community fun days. We can do everything. But unless we have that heart relationship with God... Unless that's there underneath everything we do, then we're in great danger. Even as we think about the forum later on this morning, where are our hearts with the Lord our God? This age-old tension is captured well in the 18th century song by Robert, Robert, Robert Robinson, a great surname, uh, though some words are, are outdated, but the, uh, the song is, Come Thou Fount of Every, fount of every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. And it goes on to talk about Jesus seeking us when we're strangers, wandering from the fold of God. And uh, and this verse, verse 3, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it, seal it from thy courts above. And as that song rejoices in, we can return on the basis of the character of our God. Here, chapter 2, verse 13 again return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. For some reason, this fundamental characteristic of God's nature is often forgotten by those who should know better. I can forget it sometimes when I convince myself that God won't want me to return to Him following my personal rebellion. The Pharisees of Jesus' day stumbled on this too. Uh, You might want to, uh, I'm just going to read some verses from Luke chapter 15 to finish. And as I do, if you want to follow those verses, it's on page 1049. You might like to just close your eyes and, and reflect. It's up to you. But uh, I'm going to read a, quite a decent chunk. But as I read, I invite you to reflect on what God is saying to you today. Reflecting on the judgment of the locust invasion. Is God maybe trying to get your attention through anything in your life today? Where is your heart? Is God calling you back? I'm just going to read from this account in Luke's gospel. This is the heart of God. This is God's heart to all of us here today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This was a disgraceful act of this son. He might as well have said, Father, I wish you were dead. You'd be better off to me dead. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living after he spent everything there was a severe famine in that whole country he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs the bottom of the pile for a jewish person he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. What's this father going to do with this disgusting, rebellious son who might as well have wanted him dead? What's God the Father going to do with you, with me, with my rebellious, wandering heart? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Let's pray as the band come up. My Father, I thank you so much that we can be confident of your heart. As we examine our hearts and reflect today on on how we are prone to wonder, how we get distracted by the the bling of uh, things in life, things which may be good in themselves, but we give them that place in our hearts which should be reserved for you alone. And as we examine our hearts today, Father, we could be in fear and trembling, we could be in despair, we could just be mourning and grieving. But Father, thank you that you have given us this sure uh, invitation to return, that you have made it so clear to us that you don't want us to stay in that place that you don't leave us where we are. You love us too much to leave us where we are. And so you come to us. You come to us ultimately in the person of your Son, Lord Jesus, who came and said, I've come to call, not the, not the righteous, not those who don't need any help, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have that call today, that invitation to return please would you help us to examine our hearts, see where we're wandering and to return to you. Please fill us with your spirit. Give us the strength to put to death whatever it is that's holding us back and hindering us and to have hearts which are fixed on you to follow you with all our hearts. Our most gracious and compassionate God abounding in love abounding in grace.